very, very quiet in here. Very quiet. Hey, good to see you guys. Uh, good to see you at home. What I do have to say is that the people that I can see, this group here, this is one good-looking group of people. I just have to say that, even behind the masks. You guys have the joy of the Lord in your countenance, and I can see that sparkle in your eyes. Um, so before I forget, youth, you guys are dismissed. Kids, you guys are dismissed as well. Adults, you're staying in with us this morning. There's no escape for you. So, hey, it is Palm Sunday, and we're super glad to be here. Um, I wanted to encourage you, um, if you are reading through the Bible with us, maybe in version, if you're, if you're signed up in that, uh, in that app, uh, they have a bunch of great sort of Holy Week plans kind of short devotional plans that will take you through some different thoughts for the week. Uh, great opportunity to do that, spend a little extra time in the Word this week, just as we prepare our hearts for next week as we celebrate Easter, and uh, uh, just prepare our hearts even for now, what I believe the Lord wants to do with us here this morning. So I know we've got a great text this morning. Uh, I hope that, uh, well, they're all great texts, but I hope it turns out to be a great text when I'm done with it. But uh, I think he has some things he wants to speak to us. So let's pray and just ask him to bless that, and uh, we'll jump in this morning. So, Father, we do thank you for this morning, and we thank you, Lord, for bringing us safely here, Lord. We do thank you for all of those who are joining us uh, online, Lord. We just pray that you'd bless all of us this morning, Lord, that you'd speak to each one of us. Give us ears to hear what your Spirit wants to say to your church, Lord, and help to give us uh, understanding of those things as your spirit illuminates your word to us today. And so we pray, Lord, that you bless this time. Bless your word, we pray, and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So again, welcome to Palm Sunday, and we are part of uh, multiple, multiplied millions of Christians around the globe today that are also commemorating this day. Of course, it's the Sunday prior to the you know, Easter Sunday as Jesus rose from the dead, uh, the date today of his triumphal entry into Jerusalem, as Jericho shared with us uh, this morning. It's one of those important events that's recorded for us in each one of the four gospel accounts. It was certainly a momentous moment that kind of set in motion the, the crisis, really, of that last week of Jesus' life. And all of us have heard the story probably each year, every year, for as long as we have been uh, believers. And so for some of you, that might be just a handful of times, and others here, you've probably heard this 60 times or even 70 times over the years. And we all think about Palm Sunday as a great day of celebration. And indeed, it is, and it was. And we associate this day as the day that Jesus was welcomed kind of, you know, as the coming king. We, we think about the people waving those branches, those palm branches in his honor. And then we also think about the fact that the gospel accounts tell this account of this great expectations, right, coupled with these acclamations of Hosanna, right, on Sunday to be followed very quickly with the condemnation of crucify him on Friday and in some cases probably by some of the very same people. We remember that John opened his gospel account. In John 1.11, it tells us that Jesus came unto his own, and his own received him not. 
And of course, we know as students of the scriptures that this happened just as the prophets predicted that it would happen. And in many respects, Palm Sunday itself was a day full of fulfilled prophecy. It says in the book of Zechariah, which we all hear quoted every time we, uh, we think about Palm Sunday, Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9, it says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and having salvation, lowly and riding on a donkey, a colt, the foal of a donkey. So it's a powerful prophecy, of course, that's quoted both by Matthew and even by John himself in their accounts of that very first Palm Sunday morning. And so this morning, as we kind of reflect on Palm Sunday, I want us to turn not to Matthew and and not to John, not even to Mark or to Luke, but let's actually turn, if you would, all the way back to Zechariah himself, because I think as we do we're going to see a really neat prophetic picture unfold that I think is going to help really bless us in our understanding and our appreciation of all that's really happening here as we consider Palm Sunday and the fact that Jesus is a very different kind of a king. So turn to Zechariah chapter 9, and it's kind of right in the middle of your Bible. He's one of those minor prophets that's sandwiched right there after the Psalms, but then between the major prophets and the beginning of the New Testament. And while you're thumbing through for that, I will just tell you that Zechariah served the Lord as a prophet to the people of the whole nation of Israel in the years after the remnant had returned from their 70-year Babylonian exile. And you remember, of course, that the first wave of those Jews came back under the leadership of a man named Zerubbabel, And they set out on that really arduous task of rebuilding the devastated city of Jerusalem. And they began first with the house of the Lord, right, with the temple itself in the midst of the city. And then they were also working on that protective wall that was around the city. And what we see is that although they began very well, after about just a year, they gave up. They gave up on the whole project, right? They faced intimidation from their enemies. They faced division within their own ranks. And so they opted instead to just focus on the building of their own homes. And they left the whole city of Jerusalem in ruins around them, both in terms of their personal safety, but also in terms of their personal spirituality. And I think that just this is a picture, sadly, of so many who begin so well with the Lord, and then they let kind of the trials of life and the trials of living stop them right there in their tracks and kind of leave them at a standstill. And what happens when that happens is that you have a person who's now open to attack, right? They're, they're overwhelmed by life. They're unprotected in their worship. They're discouraged. They're disenfranchised. And so this was the situation in the city of Jerusalem. So what the Lord did is he raised up two different prophets to go and kind of re-spark their passion and reignite their devotion and to jumpstart their convictions again for the Lord. And the first one of those prophets was Haggai, 
right? He delivered this very pointed and very practical kind of a prophetic exhortation that was just 38 verses long in total. And he really prompted the people just to get back to their work for the Lord. And then we have our friend Zechariah. And he goes on not just for 38 verses, but he goes on for 14 whole chapters. 14 chapters filled with this incredible kind of visionary imagery as he really calls on God's people to consider the vastness of God's program. And his messages are messages of cheer and encouragement, and they're designed to bring the souls of the people right into the the power and the, the majesty of the coming glory, right into the hope of God's plans for his people. And so we see that there's a real focus throughout the book of Zechariah on the appearing of the Messiah and on this coming reign of righteousness that the scriptures predict. Incidentally, what a great reminder, I think, for all of us that there is such a great blessing in our own times of trouble, just having our own hearts and having our own minds kind of transported to those coming days when heaven literally will be here on earth. And even more so, maybe just to the current sphere as we enjoy the kingdom here on earth even today, as we live in that sphere that's, that's governed and that's ruled by Christ. And I think as that happens to us, it helps us really to hold loosely of the things of the world and to help maintain our heavenly perspective in the midst of all of the different earthly challenges that can come our way. John says that everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself just as he is pure. It's interesting, the name Zechariah was actually a pretty common name in that time, and it means Jehovah remembers, right? What a beautiful name and what a fitting name for this prophet who ministered this word of restoration to God's people. But because it was such a common name, the book of Zechariah is very specific to point out some specifics about this Zechariah's specific genealogy. It points out in the text that this Zechariah's father's name means Jehovah blesses, and that his grandfather's name meant his time. Now, I don't think it's at all by coincidence that when we put them all together, what we have in these three generations of these Jewish men is Jehovah remembers to bless in his time. And that's precisely what this book shows us. I would highly recommend that you read the whole book of Zechariah on your own at some point, but please only do it if you want to be encouraged. If you don't want to be encouraged, then you can flip the news on, and that'll take care of that. This morning, I want to look at just the first few verses of chapter 9, and it kind of kicks off what is sort of the last section of the book. You follow all these first chapters of Zechariah that really encourage the residents of Jerusalem with this foundational truth that Jerusalem will be delivered, and it will be cleansed, and it will be completely reestablished in peace and in prosperity. And then this final section gives this de description of Jerusalem and of God's victory over all of those Gentile nations that surrounded it. 
Many of these nations, of course, we know had been the oppressors and the enemies of God's people, the Jews. In the first eight verses of Zechariah chapter 9, we read this. It says, the burden of the word of the Lord against the land of Hadrach and Damascus, its resting place. For the eyes of men and all the tribes of Israel are on the Lord. Also against Hamath, which borders on it, and against Tyre and Sidon, though they are very wise. For Tyre built, its, built herself a tower, heaped up silver like the dust and gold like the mire of the streets. Behold, the Lord will cast her out. He will destroy her power in the sea, and she will be devoured by fire. Ashkelon shall see it and fear. Gaza also shall be very sorrowful. And Ekron, for he dried up her expectation. The king shall perish from Gaza, and Ashkelon shall not be inhabited. A mixed race shall settle in Ashdod, and I will cut off the pride of the Philistines. I will take away the brood from his mouth and the abominations from between the teeth. But he who remains... Even he shall be for our God and shall be like a leader in Judah and Ekron like a Jebusite. So in all of the detail in these verses, what we have happening, I'm just going to summarize quickly. We see Zechariah declare that God's judgment is going to sweep through all of the surrounding Gentile nations that were there to the north of Israel beginning first in Syria and then working its way kind of systematically southward down through what's modern-day Lebanon, right into the northern part of Israel where the Philistines, we know, had their stronghold. And what we see here is that city by city, nation after nation, people after people, right, God's judgment is going to wipe them out, cut them off because of their wickedness and because of their rebellion against him and because of their constant mistreatment over so many years of God's people. Now, prophetic in the time of Zechariah, we now look back and we see a historic fulfillment as the armies of Alexander the Great conquered this entire region in 332 and 331 BC. And in fact, the cities that are mentioned here in Zechariah 9, 1 through 7, they perfectly trace Alexander's march through this region. As the Lord used this man and the growing Greek empire, he was the human instrument of divine judgment. One historian writes that this biblical passage accurately foretells the conquest of the eastern Mediterranean coastlands by Greek armies under the command of Alexander the Great. And what we're going to see as we go on is it also just as accurately describes this wonderful actual historical event that occurred, and we see it next in verse 8, because of the Lord, the Lord promises his people of Jerusalem, through the prophet Zechariah, in the midst of all of this destruction that will come, look what it says in verse 8, that God will encamp around their city. He says, I will camp around my house because of the army, 
Because of him who passes by and him who returns, no more shall an oppressor pass through them, for now I have seen with my eyes. So history records that though Alexander the Great marched right through Lebanon and then down through the Promised Land, on the way we know heading south all the way down towards Egypt, he was obliterating, right? He's subjugating all of these peoples that were there in his path, but he did not, strangely, conquer or even attack the city of Jerusalem. And we see here that it is because the Lord himself had prophetically promised to protect Jerusalem and to spare his house, the temple, during this time. And he did it through this remarkable chain of events that involved Alexander the Great and the Jewish high priest at the time. Now, if you want the full story, the historian Josephus records it in great detail, but here's the quick version of the story. Before Alexander actually arrived to the city of Jerusalem there with his whole conquering army, the Jewish high priest had been given a dream by the Lord. And what the Lord told the Jewish high priest to do was to dress himself and his priests in all of their ceremonial robes and go out to meet Alexander and this huge, massive, approaching Greek army, meet them outside of the city walls, unarmed. Now, this sounds to me more like a suicide mission than it does a dream, right? And yet the priests were obedient to the leading of the Lord, and what happened is that as Alexander approached the city and he sees this striking sight there in the distance, all of the priests in their white garments of fine linen, the high priest in his purple and, and scarlet clothing, of course, with that priestly headdress on his head with that golden plate that had the name of the Lord engraved on it. And seeing this, Alexander stopped his soldiers he approached by himself, and he bowed down before the high priest, and he worshiped the true and living God, because he claimed that he too had dreamed years earlier of this very same scene. That he had been given a dream many years earlier by the Lord, as he believed that God was showing him the way that he would conquer this region. And then what happened is that opening up the scriptures to the book of Daniel in chapter 8, the priests then showed Alexander how Daniel had already predicted his conquering arrival through the region. And so amazed by all of this was Alexander the Great that instead of destroying the city of Jerusalem, other accounts add that Alexander had a sacrificial lamb offered on his own behalf there for his own sins. He entered Jerusalem peacefully. He never bothered the, the city or the people in any way. So that's how this verse has already played out historically. So imagine this verse 8, right? Imagine the comfort of this prophecy and what it would have provided to these people as they labored there rebuilding their city that the Lord would protect their work. Their labor wouldn't be in vain. And what a powerful image we see here as we now can look back on the fulfillment of this prophecy. 
we see this powerful king of then the most powerful nation on the earth bowing down in worship before the Lord and then coming in peace into the city of Jerusalem. Now we have to wonder, we have to wonder whether Zechariah saw or whether Zechariah understood the prophetic connection with the very next verse, which we now know speaks of the arrival into Jerusalem, not of a Gentile king, but of the Jewish king, right, of Jesus Christ into that same city on what would be the first Palm Sunday, 600 years in the future. Read again with me in verse 9 of Zechariah 9, where it says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Stand, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and having salvation, lowly and riding on a donkey, a colt, the foal of a donkey. So just as this king, Alexander, had come as an instrument of the judgment of God, the scripture says your king is coming to you, but he's bringing the salvation of God. Because you see, Jesus is a very different kind of a king. And we know that as Jesus came into Jerusalem, you know, on that morning, that week before he was to be crucified, John tells us that a great multitude that had come to the feast, when they heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem, took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him and cried out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, the King of Israel. So right from the pages and the promises of Scripture, we have this very familiar picture, right? That very first Palm Sunday, the beginning of that annual week of the Passover feast. As the people believed that this man was finally about to assert his royal authority and to begin his royal reign over Israel and all the nations, right? They would crown Jerusalem as the capital of this regenerated world. And with words right straight out of Psalm 118, they cry out, Hosanna, right? It means save us now. And on this day, this crowd was receiving their tri Jesus as this triumphant Messiah, the King of Israel. And yet the problem is, as we know, they didn't really understand the kind of king that Jesus was because they didn't really understand the kind of king that they needed. The waving, all this waving of palm branches, that was a strong symbol of Jewish nationalism. Right? 200 years earlier, this tradition began as they hailed who was their last great deliverer, Judas Maccabeus. Right? He had delivered them from the oppression of the Syrians. And so consequently, what the people are really saying is they cried out Hosanna, and as they're waving these branches as Jesus rode into Jerusalem, they're saying, hey, we need another Judas Maccabeus. Right? Deliver us now from the Romans, right? their current oppressors. And because that word Hosanna just means save now, essentially what they're saying is we want you to overthrow that Roman yoke politically. We want you to help us economically. We want you to lead us militarily. We want you to save us now from this 
circumstance. Indeed, Jesus did come having salvation. He was able to do just that, and yet the people didn't realize that the salvation that he offered wasn't political, it was eternal. And so understanding this, it's no wonder that as the week went on and they realized that none of that was his intent, they turned against Jesus. They'd soon realize he had a very different agenda than a political one. He had a different agenda than a national one. He had a different agenda than a material one. And that's when they changed from crying out Hosanna to crying out crucify him. And unfortunately, things haven't really changed, right? The same is true today. We've seen it so much, I think, right out of our recent headlines Because you see the way that Christians individually and churches corporately, they can mobilize themselves politically for this cause or behind this personality, trying to change the government or change the economy or change society. And yet Christians are interested in that, but very few Christians are really interested in a cross that speaks of dying to self. Because it is one thing to shout out at a parade but it is altogether something else to stand at the foot of the cross. Palm Sunday, as simply as we can say it, was a patriotic rally. And the crowds were looking to Jesus as a political and a national deliverer, but not as a spiritual savior. Even though he entered the city making a clear declaration that he was one who was going to bring peace. King Alexander had come for war, but King Jesus came with peace. He came with peace on that Palm Sunday because Jesus is an altogether different kind of a king. Notice that Zechariah said specifically, he promised prophetically that Jesus would come lowly and riding on a donkey, a colt, the foal of a donkey. And in just this detail, Jesus was showing that his primary purpose wasn't war against the Romans, but his primary purpose was to provide the people with a path to peace with God, just by riding in here on a donkey. Now, we read very specifically recorded for us in all four of the gospel accounts that just short of Jerusalem, Jesus stops And he gives some of these kind of strange instructions to his disciples, asking them to go get him a donkey on which he would then use to ride as he entered Jerusalem. And as you read this, we have to wonder, wow, were the disciples maybe worried that Jesus was weary from all of the walking that he was doing? It kind of does seem like a strange bunch of detail to take up so much space and to be included by all four of the gospel writers with their four different perspectives. But as we stop and we really understand this prophecy from Zechariah, we see that there was a very specific reason for these strange requests. It wasn't an issue of exhaustion, it was an issue of presentation. Jesus was presenting himself to the Jewish people as the Jewish king of Israel. 
We know that every move that Jesus made as he went through his life in this world, we know he was directed constantly and directed consistently by the Holy Spirit, and everything he did was in exact accord with the Father's will and with the prophetic word. And so here, entering into the city, riding on this donkey, it was in clear fulfillment of this very well-known messianic prophecy, which very strangely said that this conquering king would ride into the city, not on some sort of a great stallion, right, associated with pagan kings and with war, but he would ride in on a donkey, which was an animal of peace. Now, this would have been something they would have recognized because in the ancient Near East, when a king did come in peace, it was customary that he would come on a donkey instead of on a stallion. And consider this. At the age of 33, Alexander the Great rode into Jerusalem on this most mighty steed. It was a horse that actually had a name. It was Bucephalus. It was considered by some to be the most famous horse in all of history. Apparently it was this beautiful black horse that stood hands and hands taller than any normal Macedonian stallion. And so Alexander comes atop this huge horse. He comes surrounded by these soldiers with their shining shields and their glistening spears. And yet Israel's king also at 33 years old, he comes riding into the city on a donkey. And by the way, not a big donkey, but a baby donkey. Now we today, we wouldn't associate a lowly donkey with a king, and yet this was actually the royal animal of Jewish kings. In the Bible, a donkey is a sign of humility and of labor, and strangely enough, of regal authority. And so what Jesus is doing here, for those who claim that Jesus never claimed to be the Messiah, Jesus is making a very deliberate messianic claim. He's preparing to offer himself to the people here at the feast of the Passover at precisely the time in the Jewish calendar when Jerusalem would have been surging with Jews from all over the country, all over the known world. He was presenting himself as nothing short of the anointed one of God in direct fulfillment of one of the best known messianic prophecies. But wait, there's more. Because he was also doing it on the very day which had been promised and prophesied by Daniel hundreds of years previously. Right, chronologically, it would have been the 10th day of Nisan. By our calendar, it would have been the 6th day of April, four days before the Feast of Passover. It was the very day that Daniel had described in Daniel chapter 9, when he says, Know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the command to restore and build Jerusalem, until Messiah the Prince, there shall be seven weeks and 62 weeks. Literally seven sevens plus 62 sevens, 69 seven-year units, 483 years. 
So 483 years from March 14th of 445 BC, the day that Artaxerxes gave Nehemiah the command to rebuild Jerusalem, 483 years, that exact day was April 6th, AD 32, as Jesus enters Jerusalem. It is the day that all of the Jewish religious leaders should have had circled on their calendars, right? They should have had alerts blowing up their cell phones at that point, and yet they didn't. It's no wonder that Jesus stopped as he approached the city and he looked out over Jerusalem and he cried. He said, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, because they should have known this day was coming, and yet they missed it. And they missed it because he was a different kind of king who came in peace and who brought a salvation they didn't expect. Did you know that Jerusalem actually means the city of peace? And how ironic is it that the city of peace would reject the prince of peace and crucify him a week later? All because he was a different kind of king than they had expected. Indeed, he was coming to save the people but it's gonna be a different way. Instead of simply wiping out the Romans dealing with their circumstance, Jesus was going to wipe out a far greater danger, and that was the penalty of their sins. Don't miss, Jesus didn't come and Jesus didn't die just to be a great teacher, or just to be a great example, or just to be a great moral leader, although he is all of those things. But Jesus came to be a great savior. And I think even today, we need to be careful of what we're really looking for, either personally or collectively, from the Lord Jesus, right? What kind of a deliverance are we still looking for today? Are we looking for someone to deliver us financially or circumstantially or relationally? Are we looking for someone to deliver us from that job that we hate anyway, right? Now, Jesus can deliver us from all of that, but he can deliver us from so much more than that. And how often do we really stop and take the time to actually consider the greatest kind of deliverance that there could be? How often do we stop and really take the time to think about eternity and what that's going to be like for someone who's facing the consequences of their unforgiven sins before God. So the deliverance that Jesus offers us and the deliverance that we have the privilege of offering to others, that will absolutely have an effect on every aspect of our lives, but it all starts with our sins. So when Jesus came into town to save people, he would save them but from their sins, and he'd do it by dying on a cross and paying the penalty for their sins. As Paul would write to the Ephesians, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace. So Jesus wasn't, and he still isn't, traveling on the road to revolution. He's traveling on the road to Calvary. And his road led not just into Jerusalem, but it led through Jerusalem streets where he would be mocked and jeered just days from now. It didn't end there in the city, but it continued on out of the city 
through the city gates and it ended on a hill called Golgotha, right? Calvary, the place of the skull. Precisely the place where Paul explains that he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. So Jesus would suffer and he would die in our place, the death that each one of us deserved there on that Roman cross, because Jesus is altogether a different kind of a king. And just to give us a sense of this, in writing to Colossians, Paul describes really the authority and the place of Jesus from an eternal perspective. He says that he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation, for in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. Think about that. All things that have been created have been created through him and for him. Right? In Christ, Paul says that all things are held together. So this is surely a place of supremacy and a place of preeminence. This is the place of a king. And most kingdoms will do anything necessary to protect their king. Isn't that the whole premise of the game of chess? Because when the king falls, the kingdom is lost. And so the king has to be protected at all costs. Now for you history buffs, here's another quick story. This came from the Allied invasion of Normandy, D-Day, June 6th, 1944. I'm just gonna read it. It says that British Prime Minister Winston Churchill desperately wanted to join the expeditionary forces and watch the invasion from the bridge of a battleship in the English Channel. U.S. General Dwight David Eisenhower was desperate to stop him for fear that the Prime Minister might be killed in battle. When it became apparent that Churchill would not be dissuaded, Eisenhower appealed to a higher authority, King George VI. The king went and told Churchill that if he uh, if it was the prime minister's duty to witness the invasion, he could only conclude that it was also his own duty as the king to join him on the battleship. And at this point, Churchill reluctantly agreed to back down, for he knew that he could never expose the king of the United Kingdom to such danger. And yet our king, Jesus, did exactly the opposite, because he is a different kind of a king. He surrendered his body to be crucified on the cross. He offered a king's ransom, didn't he? It was his life for the lives of his people. And that crown of thorns that was meant to be a mockery of his claims to royalty actually proclaimed his kingly dignity even in his death. This is the kind of a king that we worship and we serve the king of the entire universe who gave up his life for you and for me. And all of this, Jesus alone knew as he rode into Jerusalem that day, and yet the Palm Sunday crowd certainly did not. 
And it's amazing just to read this account and to consider that here are these people quoting the scriptures, right? They're having the scriptures fulfilled in front of them, and yet just days from now, they will just as willfully reject Jesus because he was a different kind of king and they didn't fully understand his mission. They didn't understand how his arrival here fit into God's program. And what's interesting is that truthfully, neither did Zechariah himself, even as he uttered this prophecy so many years before. Because what we notice next, one more thing in our last verse, notice what Zechariah says as he continues in verse 10. After this promise from the Lord of the arrival of the Messiah into Jerusalem, we read in verse 10, it says, I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the horse from Jerusalem. The battle bow shall be cut off. He shall speak peace to the nations. His dominion shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. So if you write in your Bible, draw a little line after verse 9 and before verse 10. Because what's remarkable about this messianic statement is Zechariah 9.9 belongs to the first coming of Jesus, but Zechariah 9.10 belongs to the second coming of Jesus. That time when we know he's going to come in power and in glory and when he'll reign over the entire earth for a thousand years, when there will be complete righteousness. This verse 10 speaks of the millennial reign of Christ, which we will study when we get to Revelation chapter 10, if the Lord doesn't tarry. Right? What you need to understand is when we read the Old Testament prophets, what we so often see is that they blend the first and the second comings of Jesus, and they speak of them seemingly as one event because they didn't have the same understanding that we do now. They couldn't, which we can, they couldn't look back and see so many of these prophecies only partially fulfilled. But as we do, what we can conclude, and then with the help of the New Testament revelation from like the Apostle Paul and some of the other New Testament writers, we can conclude now that the Lord's coming is actually in two parts. We know that Jesus came first as that babe in Bethlehem and as that suffering servant, but we know that he will also come a second time as the King of Kings. But the Old Testament prophets didn't yet understand this. It was what the Bible calls a mystery, right? Something that was concealed. It had yet to be revealed. And so oftentimes when we read the prophets of the Old Testament, they talk about the coming of Christ, but they flip-flop back and forth between the first coming and the second coming, not realizing that there's this huge valley of time between the two, and that's the very time in which we are living now, the age of grace. Right, that time during which the Father is calling out a bride, right? He's calling us as his church to be the bride for his son, Jesus. And what's significant, I think, another note you can make this morning, even though both Matthew and John saw a very clear fulfillment of, fulfillment of Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9, and they apply it accurately to this Palm Sunday scene, 
we notice that neither one of them go on to quote verse 10, even though linguistically it would have been a much more natural place to stop. Which of course simply means that under the inspiration of the Spirit, they may have been starting to be conscious of some of these scriptures only having this partial fulfillment. And I think that this is so important and it's applicable for us, especially as we consider our friend Zechariah. Even though he was delivering the very words of God and he was delivering a message from God that Zechariah only had this partial understanding that had been given to him by God. And the reason that's significant for us is that so often we can be so sure that we know so well exactly what it is that the Lord's doing in our lives or he's trying to do through our lives only to get a little bit further down the road and then to realize that we really only had half the picture, didn't we? We really only had a partial understanding. And now we can look back on these things and we have such an increased sense of clarity and of understanding. We can look back at that loss or that tragedy or that crippling disappointment or the frustration or that real time of tribulation, all of those things that we suffered through and we can see now that all of these were a part of these imperfect circumstances, these things that the Lord allowed into our lives because he was working out this perfect plan for our lives. We start to realize that he actually will sometimes act differently than we will expect him to act because King Jesus is a different kind of a king and he brings a different kind of a kingdom. It's a kingdom where the first are last, right? And where the last are first and where our suffering is never wasted. It's a kingdom where our king actually is a servant. Where he came to us first, not by force, not to rule over us and to conquer us as Alexander, but he comes first in peace, riding on a donkey, right? He came to be the slain lamb that brings salvation. He came to be nothing less than the perfect Passover lamb. Because I know that you all know this as the good Bible students that you are, that according to the law of Exodus, today was the day, right? Palm Sunday, the 10th of Nisan, right? The 6th of August, four days before the Passover, that was the day that every Jewish family celebrating Passover there in Jerusalem or wherever they were, that was the day where they would select their lamb to be their sacrifice. And then the priests would watch that lamb closely from the 10th to the 14th day of the month in order to ensure that it was the best of health and it was without any spot or without any blemish. Josephus tells us that one year they counted the number of lambs that were slaughtered for Passover and the figure was 256,500 lambs just there in the city of Jerusalem. And so it's here on this day, on Palm Sunday, in AD 32, we can picture literally tens of thousands of lambs being brought into Jerusalem, into that holy city, and it's on this day, in the midst of all of that selecting and all of that inspecting, 
on that day that the true Lamb of God, the Lamb of God that was slain before the foundation of the world, he entered into the city in humility and in fulfillment prophetically, and he came to be sacrificed for you and for me to take away the sins of the world. But we know the very next time that Jesus will ride into Jerusalem, also in fulfillment of prophecy, the very next time that Israel sees their king, the scene is going to be radically different, isn't it? Revelation 19, Zechariah 14, all predict that Jesus is going to come this time. He's going to come in great glory, not on a donkey, but on a white stallion. He's not going to come in humility. But we also know that the armies of heaven, which includes each and every one of us that have a relationship with him, that we are going to be with him. We know that he's going to descend again upon the Mount of Olives. He's going to come down that very path that he's taking on this Palm Sunday. We know that he's going to split that mountain into two. It's going to be a scene of total and complete victory as he comes to defeat his enemies and to establish his kingdom. And we will be there. But for now, we're here, right? And as we're here on this Palm Sunday... Oh, how thankful we can be that Jesus did come first in humility, right? Riding on a donkey. That he came not on the road to revolution, not, not to defeat Rome, but he came on the road to Calvary to, to redeem our souls back to God. That he came first having this salvation just as Zechariah promised that he would. Now, I know this morning you've probably become a Zechariah fan. Did you know that Zechariah 13 tells us that Jesus would be arrested and smitten? Zechariah 11 tells us he would be sold for the price of a slave. Zechariah 13 tells us he'd be wounded in the house of his friends. Zechariah 12 explains that he would be pierced on the cross. And the point is that this final section of the book of Zechariah is literally, it's a treasure trove of prophetic truth because in it we see the entire scope of the Lord's work, both his first coming and his second coming. We see Jesus, a very different kind of king. And as we close, finally, on this Palm Sunday, here's what we need to remember, is that though Jesus may not have been the kind of king that we expected, he absolutely is the king that we needed. And this week is the week that we remember that. This week is the week that we remember that when Jesus is beaten and falsely accused and condemned, that our king is selflessly enduring pain and he is selflessly enduring injustice and he's doing it for us. That this week when the leaders and the soldiers are going to mock him and they're going to tell him to save himself, we need to remember that our king is saying, I can't save myself right now because I'm saving you. We need to remember that when the king on Friday gives up his life, it's not at all in defeat, but it's in absolute complete victory over death. And at that moment, he is crushing our enemy Satan under his foot. Jesus may not be the king that we expect, but he absolutely is the king that we need. 
He won the victory for his subject. He saved us from our true enemies of sin and death and the devil. He is the king that we need. And this same Jesus is still king. Right now he is reigning and he is ruling from heaven and the scriptures say he's doing it for our benefit. He's still not the king we would expect, but he is still the king that we need. And if Jesus is not the king that we expect, then I think that what we should expect is that the king's rule in our lives is probably going to be what? Unexpected. And I think that this is so often what we struggle with. We struggle with the fact that the king's reign doesn't meet with our expectations of how the king should be reigning in our lives. Those times when we suffer, whether it's from an illness or a tragedy in our family or the loss of a job, we struggle because it's not what we would expect. After all, our logic says, if we are subjects of the king and if he's the most powerful king in the universe, then why would he allow us to suffer? Well, because Jesus is not the king that we would expect, but he is the king that we need. And just like Jesus flipped his own suffering on its head, and he used that suffering to bring about the most glorious thing that any of us could ever imagine, he used his suffering to bring about the salvation of the entire world, and in the same way, he can flip your suffering, he can flip my suffering, he can flip your missed expectations and my expectations, he can take all those things and flip them on their heads, and he will somehow bring about something good and something glorious from those things. That's Palm Sunday. And it looks so far beyond Palm Sunday, right? We, we remember Zechariah sent here to encourage and to exhort Israel. And then we think back further, we remember his father and we remember his grandfather. And as we think about those three men and those three generations and we think about their names, we're reminded and we remember that Jehovah remembers to bless but he does it in his time. Amen? So, Father, we do thank you, Lord, for this morning, and we thank you for this day on Palm Sunday, Lord. We thank you for all that it reminds us of, Lord. We thank you for all of the historic fulfillment of prophecy that we can see, Lord, that gives us the assurance and the confidence of the future fulfillment of those prophecies that we've yet to see realized. And so, Lord, I pray that this week you would speak to each one of our hearts. Lord, prepare our hearts for Easter. Lord, not simply as a day where people are celebrating spring, Lord, but a day in which we celebrate Jesus' victory over sin and death. We celebrate this salvation that he brought as he rode into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday. We thank you, Lord, and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, let's, uh, I think the team has one more song, so let's worship the Lord 
uh, together and then we will dismiss.